0: Emily today believes that you can be yourself and still be a good person, even though I want to say, just don't give a F, but also don't be a douchebag in that sense. I think all in all, what I stand for today is mental agility. And mental agility is a giant umbrella that goes into taking care of your main pillars of vitality. You need to check in with yourself psychologically, emotionally, emotionally, feed yourself nutritionally and also physically once you've taken care of all these pillars to your vitality then only can you really be of service if you want to be of service to others but you yourself are running on empty then the quality of your service how is it really helpful
1: this is Donna Edda and you're listening to another episode of the interested podcast a show that brings you ideas for wellness What happens when your identity falls by the wayside? What happens when you're no longer the person the world once knew? This is the story of my guest today, Emily Lola Tan. Emily is an entrepreneur, performer, podcast host, and teacher. She was a fitness celebrity, featured in magazines and even a TV series. Then she was diagnosed with leukemia. All of a sudden, she was forced to confront the stuff that she's been avoiding by being so busy. I'm sure many of us can relate. This is a story of self-reflection and resilience. In this conversation, we talk about the loss of identity, embracing your inner feline, what is mental agility? Emily shares her healing journey, tips on how to support friends who are fighting their own battles, financial struggle and don't give a hoot about what other thinks of you. Emily is the host of the Tackling Minds podcast which provides a source of inspiration for many fighting their own battles and work on mental agility content warning sexual assault is discussed in this episode if you or anyone you know needs help please speak to a crisis counselor and remember you are never alone and without further ado here is Emily Lola 10.
0: First of all, I'm curious about the name Lola. Yeah, I could really segue into a weird story, but it's actually quite innocent. It was my Spanish name in high school. And the reason why I embraced Lola, like, what, six years after high school, is because when I went to business with a business partner to start the pole dancing school, we believed in embracing our other side i guess it's like our inner goddess self our inner our inner feline self you know like that self we we suppress a lot because of society we worry about what people might think of us so we encourage women to come in into the poll room and shed that mask and just be someone else it, it's kind of like giving yourself permission to unleash that side of you that is natural it's not like that it's not that it isn't you it's completely natural and it's completely part of you
1: i totally deeply relate to that and i think every person should embrace that part of them but first i want to go to your story with your battle with leukemia Mm started in 2018. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to that? Because I'm very curious about your journey and your self-discovery in this process.
0: I guess dealing with hardships, cancer wasn't the first hardship I experienced. I mean, it is the hardest, of course, but I'm not saying that it is the only thing I had to kind of overcome. I believe that the more challenging times we go through and we face head on from a young age, the more we're able to practice building resilience and practicing that. And also practicing, I guess, stoicism in in a sense. I've always believed in in that, although I wasn't really conscious of it. When I first got diagnosed, I had just separated from my husband at the time, my second husband. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that itself would probably tell you some stuff that I had to endure and go through. I had moved from Hong Kong to... the UK that was the plan but then my ex-husband had got a job offer in Dubai so we went to Dubai and I never actually wanted to go to Dubai but there anyway and Mm. I I was really unhappy when I when I was in Dubai because one major thing was triggered when I was in Dubai and that was facing racism experiencing prejudice and I had dealt with all of that during my teenage years growing up in Tennessee and when I had experienced that in Dubai it it forced me to question myself again and to reflect upon like, why am I, to ask myself the question, why am I so bothered? Why am I feeling that my ego is being, is being hurt? You know, why do I feel like my pride is being poked at? Because at the time, the, the instinctive thought was, I didn't work this hard from nothing and just to be treated like how I was treated before. Now, that was the thing. I was in a whole different state. I was questioning having kids as well. Um, that was one of the reasons, actually, one of the major reasons why my ex and I had separated. I guess for many of us, when you're going, when you thought you had your whole life planned out and all of a sudden your feelings change or your thoughts change and it won't leave you. Because I guess I had them in my head for like six months and I thought, okay, this is not just a phase. I, I've been thinking about this for six months now. And this can't be fair uh, for anybody, for him or for me. Yeah, so I guess I was kind of limbo. So when we had separated, I left to go to Spain and eventually got a job offer in Spain. So yeah, that was an exciting time, although I was really busy. And I think right. I had thrown myself into work, which is what I know. So even though when I was a teenager, I worked throughout high school and probably explain why I never actually had friends throughout high school, I was busy working. But I've always believed in the fact that when you're young and you can do it and you can handle it, do it while you can kind of thing. But I think looking back, I realized I had used work as a way to deal with things by not confronting them head on, it was just like a, uh, it was a very productive-ish distraction. So yeah, I was in Spain and I had just finished my entire three month leg of traveling from Australia back through Asia and then to Dubai and then back to back to Europe. So I was changing time zones in a short span of time. So when I actually fell ill, I didn't think of any I didn't think anything of it. I just thought I was massively jet lagged. So when I got checked in the ER and they told me it might be leukemia and we had to start chemotherapy in two days or I'll die. I think at that point I was done being shocked. It was more like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to surrender because there was nothing else I thought I could do at the time. I was so weak. I was drugged up. My dad had flown in from Russia to see me and I felt like, oh, I got support now. I don't need to be the one who, who needs to be on the front line in that sense. You know what I mean? Can you talk about the stages that you went through? That first phase when I first got diagnosed was the first time I ever felt like I surrendered to something that was beyond my control and I don't need to fight to control it. At the time I had one task in mind and it was a one track mind. Looking back, it was like the simple it was like the simple times. All I need to do is find the best treatment to stay alive. That was my entire goal for about three months. And the reason why I said three months, because that was about that was about the amount of time it took for the doctor to figure out like what might be the best prognosis for me at the time. Cause we had to wait to see how my body responds after the first round of chemo and then the second round and third round and fourth round, and finally making a decision that, you know what, at this stage, I think in order for you to not relapse, which is, which for AML patients, it's, it's really hard apparently to keep us in remission. Like re- the chances of relapse for AML patients is really high. And at the time, um, both of my brothers were not bone marrow matches for me. So that was the other thing. It was like, oh, there is this hope that I could do a bone marrow transplant, but my brothers were not matches. So it was a constant battle in a sense that made me clung on harder to my faith. Cause I, so I grew up in a Christian household. But growing up as a teenager and a young adult, I think like in my 20s, I had lost my way. Like I had lost touch with that side. I lost connection. I think that's largely to do with my first husband as well. He was an atheist and he would take pride for some reason in, in coaxing someone out of their faith. Um, So that had a massive influence on me as well. But when I decided to surrender, that was the first time I spoke to God again for me. And throughout that entire journey, it was a lot of doubt that I had to deal with.
1: What kind of doubts?
0: The doubts, the doubts were... Questions like, "Is this? Am I? Am I right? I feel confident about this, but what if I'm not right?" And all of that ties into being in the health and fitness industry since 2004. Because having been having been in the fitness, health and fitness industry for so long, time people assume that you know everything, or you know a lot more than, they, than what they do. Right? Like I was, I watched my nutrition. I I was training a lot. I but I did try different types of diet. I experimented on myself a lot but it still doesn't defeat the fact that I thought I knew enough. So, and then I got sick, right? So I think that would cause a lot of doubt in anyone really. Can you imagine if a doctor gets sick? You know what I mean? When I chose to go public with it on social media, I knew what kind of risk I was taking. I knew like, you know, people are gonna be shocked thinking, Emily is type of person who wouldn't eat ice cream in our presence. <laughs> I'm like, Hang on, I do eat my
1: birthday cake, okay? Going back to your journey, I remember when, as I was doing the research on your story that when you were diagnosed, you had to make a decision really quickly and that your dad actually asked the doctor, can we just wait, wait it out because of his experience with his own mother? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you guys had a matter of days, right, to decide
0: Yeah. Well, we didn't, we weren't even actually given days. So the day I was officially diagnosed, which was the day after I was checked into the ER and the doctor came and said, okay, we are, we need to give her chemotherapy this Saturday. And my dad said, that's in two days. Can we not wait? And she said, no, she cannot wait. She will die. So when you hear that, that's, you can't really do anything else. And I didn't know how, much of, how critical of a condition I was in until I got discharged and read my own report. It said I was in critical condition. I was like 80%. Oh, my gosh. How did that affect the way you saw yourself? Yeah, so circling back to having doubt about, like, do I actually know what I know? Um, and perhaps everything that I had done just, like, not long ago, were they even right? For example, when I brought up my ex-husband about like, okay, I don't know if I want to have kids and I don't know, I don't think it's fair if you need to be the one who's waiting for me to give you an answer. I can't even promise you in five years if I want to have kids, that kind of thing. So it it definitely made me question all of my decisions that I've made the year Mm. before I was diagnosed. And that's, I don't know, in, in a way I think it might be healthy, but it also could be unhealthy if you're constantly going back and second guessing yourself because I was never I've never been the type to second guess myself. I've always been I've always been the one who says you make a choice and you own the consequences no matter what the outcome is. If the outcome sucks, guess what? Suck it up. Deal with it. That's always been how I see things and how I approach things. I guess in, the, in that sense that also helps me deal with dealing with chemo as well and dealing with cancer and dealing with having a now precarious life, like I don't know what kind of death sentence this is and how positive I can blindly be. With all of that, it definitely was a struggle with identity in that first phase. There was just so many questions and I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't really have people who had cancer around me at the time, except for like one or two few friends and they really helped. And that's when I realized actually reaching out to people who had gone through similar things, it really does help you gain perspective because they have gone through a lot and they probably had different thoughts and different decisions that helps you realize, oh, actually, I don't need to be thinking that way. And that's this is actually common. If I'm, if I'm freaking out right now, it's actually common.
1: I don't need to worry about freaking out. How did you find these people? How did you
0: find the others? The others... I think I was lucky enough, one of my colleagues uh in Spain, he had he had been through cancer as well and he was on his fourth year being in remission. And prior to him, I did have friends and acquaintances who were diagnosed as well. Um unfortunately they were they're no longer here. But I think at the time I had people who could empathize as well. You know, like one of my friends, his wife got diagnosed with brain cancer and Two one of my friends, their daughter got diagnosed with brain cancer and she's really young, you know, so just it was just like, oh, my gosh, we're all in this together. And then later on, I had learned that another one of my friends' husbands got diagnosed with eye cancer and we're all around the same time. So it, in a way, I kind of felt like, OK, we we're a team here, <laughs> you know, fight on team.
1: What was the thing that helped you guys the most? Like when you found each other, what do you think um, made a difference
0: I, I can't say that I was in direct contact with them, the, the ones who had, were fighting cancer at the same time as me. The only thing that we could stay in contact via was via Instagram. And I say that because one of them was really sick and she was in the hospital in Spain. Another one was really sick and she was in the hospital in the States. And neither one of them actually made it. Both of them had passed about a month before I had gone in for my transplant. And that affected me a lot too. 'Cause I knew these two and their families and I knew how strong everybody was rallying for them. And for them to for them to not have modern medicine work out for them, it was it was it was crushing for everybody, you know? And at the same time, I couldn't help but wonder, oh man, I really hope that it works for me. <laughs> when you've come across someone who
1: is sick, who's got cancer or some sort of really serious illness or in your situation, when you found out that you had leukemia, what was the thing that you wanted the most from the people around you? What was the thing that helped you get through the tough times? Or what did you want to
0: hear? What really helped me at the time was having my parents fly over to Spain to spend time with me. My parents have been divorced since I was 13. and never actually had them in the same country at the same time. Um, I mean they weren't in the, in the same country at the same time anyway during this. My dad came first and he left and my mom came over. But it really helped to have them there. And the, and the guy I was dating at the time, he had flown up from Hong Kong as well and spent the entire time with me in Spain. And he chose to work remotely. I, like, I was really thankful just to have someone there to take care of things. For example, I had a lot of flights lined up for all my work and accommodations. So he was the one who helped me get refunds from flights, get refunds from accommodations and events that I was booked in for, like all of that really helped. It's just someone to deal with the, the little things that you just don't have the patience for or you're just not in the right mind because I was so drugged up on morphine and all the other medication. I really couldn't even have a normal conversation. And what did you not want to hear when you were sick? The first time I heard someone said to me, Well, I guess out of all the cancer, I would choose leukemia as the one of the most curable ones. That really hit hard because that's not the case. And that's a big myth. A lot of people die from leukemia. Yeah. But I mean, I I don't know. It's like in a way, you can't really blame someone because I know it's not as ill intention to be insensitive. I know it's not that. And sometimes we just get so awkward, like, I don't know what to say. I guess I just have to say something. Exactly, it is awkward. What is the right thing to say? I think it's really individualized as well because everyone is going to be different in how they process their own emotions and how they register trauma and also what kind of what kind of love language they speak mostly and which ones they resonate with you know what I mean some people might not be a verbal type of person some people just want hugs and they don't want to talk you know they don't want they don't want to answer your question how are you feeling today? they don't want to talk about it they just need you to be there. Your presence is enough or they just need solitude. They, they need alone time to be with their thoughts, to, to process it their own way. It really depends on the person. So I, I don't know, I, in a way, I think what I would suggest is to find out if, well, one, really ask yourself, do you actually know how this person communicates? And what do they resonate with? And if they, if you don't know because you're not as close, maybe ask the person who's closest to them, and be like, um, does she respond better to gifts, or does she respond better to written notes? Does she respond better to having a talk, or does she respond better to hugs? You know, something for touch. For example, if if that person is more of a touch person, you can definitely give gifts like a really nice, cushy towel, blanket, you know, things that that person can feel and find comfort in that. Wow, I really love this love language <laughs> approach. It's Absolutely. so truly it so individualized and you just have to yeah. find that person's love language. Yeah, and sometimes we also need to understand that person is capable of empathy for you, having trouble finding empathy for them. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, it, it's still a dialogue, and in that sense, it's, it's almost better to say, look, I'm really sorry you're going through this and I don't know what to say, but I just want you to know that I'm here for you. If you want me to be here and not say anything, that's fine. If you want me to send you funny memes and not expect a response, that's fine. Just offer ideas for that person because it, that you can be adaptable as well and how you want to support. And also be okay that sometimes... That person might just be too tired to see you and you don't have to take it personally. Should we assume that person just wants space or should we always reach out first? I think reaching out is always no harm because reaching out with the note saying, look, I'm just reaching out here. I don't expect you to respond right away because I know you're battling your own thing. So I'm not expecting a response, but just know that I'm here. That that really helps because I did have a few friends who text me who texted me that way saying, Look, I just want you to know that I'm here. I'm thinking of you. I don't need a response. You write me whenever you're ready. That's it. I, that was a good relief because I didn't feel obligated to respond to someone. You know how sometimes you don't re- you don't reply to a text and you go, oh, I am a douchebag. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just just kinda, you know, don't make this about you when the other person's going through something like a hard time.
1: Hey, but Emily, what about those who come came up to you and said, Hey, have you thought about being a vegan? Have you tried breath work? Have you gone keto? I mean, how do you
0: respond to that? Dude, I'm nodding so hard right now. <laughs> so, yeah, my response, it's also individualized. I need to see who it is and if it's someone I know or someone I don't know. Because if it's someone I don't know, I'm just gonna be cutthroat. What I would say is, look, the year I was die the year before I was diagnosed with cancer, I was vegan i had practiced fasting and i've been doing breath work for two years and i have been meditating for three years anything else you want to say again it's no it's not ill intention but sometimes there are some people who like to project their own beliefs upon you and forgetting the fact that that we're all different all of our dna's are different and our environment plays a big part in how we respond to what we ingest obviously you went
1: through chemo and all of that but i want to talk about what You did beyond the conventional treatment. What helped you heal? What kind
0: of tools you used? I think I probably maxed out all the tools that I use in a sense. So I went through conventional chemo because it seemed, uh, according to two oncologists, I was responding well to it. But I had further sought out a, uh, at the time his title was cancer nutritionist, but he's also a functional medicine practitioner. His name is Miles um, and he and me practice at Life Clinic in Hong Kong. And at the time, he had recommended I take this test called RGCC test. And this test will have a comprehensive test to see what kind of alternative medicine, including chemo as well, uh, that your current cells respond to. This is so just in case chemo stops working or it doesn't work, we have immediate uh, data on what the alternative out there that my body will respond to. So I invested 30,000 Hong Kong into that. And that, oh, was wow. like complete, yeah, that was not covered, but I thought, you know, that's an investment that I'm just going to have to suck it up because you can't, it's so hard to take chances now. What kind of
1: results did you get that was able to help you make better decisions?
0: That was definitely one of it. That actually gave me faith in, in like believing fully that, okay, this test also backed up the fact that chemo is responding. Like I am responding to chemo. So I'm going to put full faith into this. And at least I know if it changes one day, I know what my alternatives are. At the same time, I had also taken a stool test to check if my gut health was in check because I've been having a lot of gut issues since I moved to Hong Kong. And we were like during all the consults, we had boiled it down to, okay, there are so many contributing factors that might have resulted in, in leukemia happening, but it's hard to pinpoint which one is it. And I believe it's it's ridiculous. It's unreasonable to really pinpoint which one it is anyway. I just need to look for different things. So I was high in heavy metals in arsenic and uh, mercury. Um, I was deficient in certain minerals, which correlates with the fact that I went vegan for a year and I was very nutrient deficient despite the fact that I was supplementing. So I I didn't go on vegan without any sort of research. I did read that, okay, these are gonna be the minerals that you would be deficient in once you go vegan. So do supplement those. So I did. But the other thing I also realized is that if your gut health is not able to absorb anything that you ingest anyway, the supplements are essentially a waste of money and time. Yeah, it's going to pee it out. Yeah. And I was worried at the time that I might have leaky gut. So thankfully, I did not. However, I do have, I I had, I don't know now, but I had a high amount of bad bacteria in the gut. while I still have good bacteria, it just meant that my good bacteria, like my, my good bacteria soldiers... We're just so mm-hmm. busy fighting this war the entire time. They just don't have anything. Any, like, I don't have any more resources to be, being to be healthy and fighting off cancer cells in that sense. So, so what worked for you? How did you deal with this? So, how I dealt with that was I immediately looked for different kind of supplements that will not clash with my own medication for, for cancer and for chemo and stuff, mm-hmm. and started to care more about eating for the sake of nutrients like I would break it down which kind of fish would give me the best omega-3 and less mercury and stuff which kind of vegetables would be this this this, this and I plan out my food according to that it was like science-based in a sense yeah I mean, people keep talking
1: about fasting during chemo have you heard about that of course so what's the study behind that
0: I don't really understand so dude, here's my take on it even if you don't plan on fasting during chemo, you would you would unintentionally fast anyway, and depending on the type of chemo that you have. So the chemo that I have is high dose and almost lethal. Like the people who are administrating my chemo, they had their whole PPE suit on, man, like the whole face shield and everything. I'm like, why are, are you, you know you have to do a double take. Like this, this stuff is going in my body intravenously and you have a full suit on. So when you're dealing with that kind of chemo, you literally can't even eat. Like I couldn't eat the first round of chemo and the last round of chemo from me were the worst where I couldn't ingest any food for like a week. So even if I did not plan on fasting, I was fasting anyway. And the only thing about fasting throughout chemo is understanding why are you doing fasting to begin with? Are you doing fasting because you don't want to throw up? Because some people, it's just as simple as that. Look, I know I'm going to throw up. I don't want to throw up. I'm just going to fast. It's uncomfortable when you throw up a lot of food. And the other reason could also be, okay, when you fast, you don't give your body. It's more like a signaling thing. You put your body in a state where it's just going to be in the autophagy phase. That's when your good cells start to kill off all the dead cells or the inactive cells in that sense. I'm hopefully someone that for more professional sense can explain better than me. If you guys are listening, just Google it or like look it up. But yeah, so it's meant to also help mitigate side effects from chemotherapy. But again, it's also different for everybody because chemo also comes in all different forms. Some chemo come in a lower dosage and an oral, and an oral form. Some chemos come in lower dosage, IV. Some chemos are high dose Some chemos are just chronic that you have to do it for life. And some chemos are short stint, um, high dose, and then you take a break and you recover from it and you go back on. So yeah, it really depends on what type it is for what type of cancer and the age of the person and if there are any other illnesses that this person has. It's not uncommon for someone, for example, who had breast cancer before, and have a secondary cancer, for example. Like I met two people via Instagram and you know via the world social media where they had battled breast cancer like two years ago, and then they got diagnosed with the same type of leukemia that I had.
1: What's the reasoning behind that? Like, is there an explanation?
0: Yeah. So we don't know for sure, but with the one that I did have a Skype session with, uh, she's out in California. She said. What I didn't know at the time was one of my treatment for breast cancer. The side effect was leukemia.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah,
0: yeah. And if you read side effects of chemotherapy, side effects include cancer. Isn't that like a mind fudge? And when I mentioned earlier, like the first phase of um, of just right after chemotherapy, right after cancer, Mm -hmm. I was researching alternative treatments as well for leukemia. And I found quite a few places in Germany um, that are quite advanced. However, what I didn't realize is the prerequisite for me to be admitted at at their clinic is that I need to be declared in remission. And that was also bizarre to me because I was like, the whole point of me going to you is because I want to get into remission. Yeah, I I guess those places are for people who have just been freshly declared in remission and they want to increase their chances of staying in remission. That's That's my guess.
1: So through the treatment,
0: how did your body change? My body changed in ways that I never thought I could be. Like I was pretty muscular. Like I had a high amount of muscle mass and all of that atrophied in the first, Mm. maybe three months after chemo. And I mean, that was expected anyway. I was fasting unintentionally. I was bedridden for like 21 days. I barely got out of the bed because it was just so tiring. Just my little walk from the bed to the bathroom would just kind of like knock me out for a little bit. And so that took me a while to reintroduce exercise back into my lifestyle. And then from the second chemotherapy onwards, I was given a lot more steroids and that really fluctuated my weight. Like I got bloaty and puffy and just, I don't know, I felt bigger. I felt jiggly. Girl, I felt jiggly, you know? I jiggled in places I never jiggled before. So that's from the steroids. Yeah, steroids is one of it. And also because I was... A whole lot less active than what I was before, and still Mm. trying to eat like a normal, I guess, like a normal caloric intake. So just trying to find that balance as well. It was like completely new. Talk about that transition and again, that new identity. I think I've embraced it now, but dude, the first week I got out of a hospital in Spain when my head, when I I got freshly shaved my head. I was so determined to not look like a boy. You know, when you're Asian, <laughs> when you're Asian in Spain, you stand out already. And if you walk around with a bald head and it's winter, so if you wear coats and stuff, people will be like, is she a girl? Is that a girl or a boy? <laughs> so I would intentionally wear all of my colorful stuff to make it obvious that I was a girl. I immediately went shopping for headscarves to make it known that I am a girl, okay. So I, I felt like I definitely lost that sense of, of femininity to begin with. Yeah. And at the time the guy I was dating, he was bald as well. And I'm like, man, we're going to like twins of different yeah. races. We're going to like brothers <laughs> from different mothers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm glad you had a sense of humor about it.
0: Gosh, that's got crazy. To, man. Like, I, oh, I was consuming comedy stuff. I love comedy stuff. So that really helped. Ooh. Yeah, that was the other thing. You know, if that person really res- um, resonates with funny stuff or, ne- or need to find a sense of humor, definitely, like, the more cutthroat the comedy, the better. Because you ain't, you ain't got no time for, you know, softcore rated G comedy. Oh, and I, and I found this Instagram account called The Cancer Patient. And they are cutthroat dark humor. Like, dark humor is the only way you can connect with us now.
1: What, what other tools helped you heal and what inner work did you do during this time?
0: Yes. So not only looking for professionals for nutritional help and also for um, physiological help, uh, like PT-wise, I had sought after a PT to help me as well. I also looked for a psychologist to help me because at the time, even, even before I saw a psychologist, I didn't think I needed one. I was just reflecting, like, okay, I've 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 seek professional help nutritionally and phys- and with physical training, even though I have also studied nutrition myself and I have done my own certifications and training and I have a history in personal training as well. Yet I don't feel I can trust myself. So you know what? Why not? Let's just go see a psychologist and see what can be done. And literally, the first day I walked to psychologist's office, she said, "What can I do for you?" I'm like, "I don't know, honestly. I'm here to see what we can do together." I think at the time it was more like, you know, just you you need an open mind now. If you want to be so insistent about, oh, I don't need this, I don't need that. But yet here you are. You find yourself in this position. Because if it worked out for you the whole time, why are you in this position right now? I I didn't realize mental health was the last thing I, I ever prioritized. And this is going back to thinking before self-help books. Psh, I don't need that. Kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, when you're younger and you're growing up, you think, oh, look, I'm tough. Just forget about it. Mental health does not mean that you go in knowing that you have an illness or no- going in wanting a diagnosis. Mental health does not mean that you have any illnesses to begin with. It just means that you are, su- you are looking for a doctor for your mind, just like how you look for a doctor for your cold. Or just going to a dentist for a checkup and a clean. Maintenance. You hire a personal trainer to take care of your body. Hire someone to Absolutely. help you take care of your mind. What were some of the strategies that the
1: um, psychologist were able to give you to help you deal with this this time? All I
0: realized at the time was that she made me answer a lot of my own questions. Honestly, at the time, it annoyed me. Now, looking back, mm. I knew that was essential. But at the time, I would be like, you know, uh, so what do you think about this when I say this? And she would say, well, what do you think? I'm like, man. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, you have to do the work, though. And I I'm really glad she did she did that. I think I went in for about eight sessions and realized there were a lot of things that I had to unpack. And even though on the outside I might have appeared strong and tough and told myself, look, I had gone over the fact that I was raped. I had gotten over the fact that I was raped twice. I had gotten over my abortion. I had gotten over this. I gotten over that. I thought I had gotten over all of these. But it turned out that I was just really good at suppressing stuff. And when I read the book, When the Body Says No by Gabor, Gabor Mate, his whole research was talking about when you suppress your own anger and frustration, or when you don't express the things that you need to express, it will express in a different form. For some people, it's expressed in the form of addiction to substances or to behavior or to actions. And in some other cases, it expresses itself in illnesses and diseases.
1: So what came up when you had to deal with
0: your experience with rape? I realized that I never allowed myself to admit it was rape. I realized that I felt guilty of putting myself in that situation, of allowing myself, some, like, quote-unquote, permitting myself to be in that position. And what happened was I was 15. My boyfriend at the time was 19. We had went to a house party, and we were drinking, just like how teenagers would. I had passed out. And then when I got up in the morning, I'm no longer a virgin. I didn't think it was rape because I guess the, I guess when you're at that, at that age and not really been exposed to a lot of these topics, you tend to think rape is something violent. Rape is something that you're conscious of because that person wants power. You know, that's what I associate rape with. I didn't associate rape with like I slept and I woke up and that's it. And the second time I was raped, that was when I was like 18. And I think that part, that one, again, I was completely sober. That was a completely different situation. Me and my, me and the guy I was dating at the time were in his parents' house and we we're in his room. He wanted to get busy and I'm like, no, I don't want to, I'm not in the mood. And he forced himself on me and I fought a little bit and then I just stopped fighting and the whole time he was doing it. I, I actually wondered myself, why did I stop fighting? And I couldn't answer myself. Were you able to answer that later on in life when you had to deal with this issue? I don't think I still have the answer for it. And I just have to be okay with it. But I think that is one of the reasons why I started learning martial arts. (laughs) Because I didn't take on martial arts when I was a kid. I only started martial arts when I was like 19, I think, when I moved back to Malaysia. Yeah, and started really believing in the fact that I probably didn't feel I was capable of protecting myself after the, my first experience with that 19 year old boyfriend, I was 15, we had to stay together. Like I didn't leave him, even though I tried. I didn't, I, didn't. I kept taking him back and I kept allowing things to happen. Cause even the second time when he wanted us, to I told him no. And his response was, well, you're not a virgin anymore anyway. And I remember feeling really crushed. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed. So from there on, sex had just became a chore to me. And sex had became something that I just use and do for the sake of it. It, didn't be, it. it wasn't something that I had enjoy for pleasure. It wasn't something I did for myself. And that took a long time to realize what I was doing to myself. <laughs> Until I met the guy that I moved to Hong Kong for. <laughs> exactly. How long did it take you yeah, to come so to that realization? really helped me embrace the fact that, look, this is for both of us. Turn the lights on and everything. Like, wow, I've never had sex with the lights on. You know, that's such a big thing for us girls too. That sex with the lights on. But that was the first. Like after him, I'm like, ooh, you know what? I like having sex with the lights on. I want to explore. I want to dress up. I want to. When I want. It was just like this side of me that was always been expressed through pole is now finally being expressed through me. I can't believe it took me so long to realize that's a thing. You know. And just be okay with it. it's better late than never. Even though I was teaching pole, so consciously I was I was preaching the fact you got to own your womanhood, you got to own your body, you got to have confidence with yourself. I was teaching that through the acts of pole dancing, but I wasn't teaching that like electroform, like verbally electroform. Can you actually
1: expand on what that means? How you got into it? Because I, I find it really fascinating, and I
0: love your work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And the start of it was just one of those casual things that I had just quit my job of like three years at the time from being an operations manager and wanting to switch over to being a personal trainer. And I took three months off for myself. And I told myself, I couldn't afford going for classes when I was a teenager. Now that I can afford it, I'm going to do everything. And that included pole dancing classes. So I went online, found this girl. She had just moved from the UK. And I just moved back from the States. So we both clicked right away. And after like a few lessons, I decided, you know what? This is life-changing. I'm gonna keep like, doing this. And I couldn't explain exactly like why I was so captivated by it. All that I can think of right now looking back is the fact that this was, a, this was an activity that really challenged myself in my own dialogue with your dialogue, like dialogue with yourself. For example, when you, tell, when, when you are faced with the fact that, wow, I can't lift myself up, and then you start having a conversation with yourself, you're just weak. No, I'm not. I can do this. So yeah, the thing with pole is it's like no one can spoon feed you with this. You need to work hard, and your achievement is your achievement. It's nobody else's, because you worked hard enough to get yourself up there and do the tricks that you want to do. You got yourself flexible enough to do the tricks that you want to do. You got yourself strong enough and powerful enough to execute the tricks that you want to do. Nobody else helped you there. So that's very empowering. And that also allowed me to not fixate on aesthetics as much. Like we're all fixated on having abs, on having skinny abs, the lines here. We want thin arms. We don't want thigh gap but once you realize that but if i have all of that it's harder for me to do what i want to do in my activity you know i just don't have the strength or i don't have the flexibility i don't have that power so if i what it, it really boils down to like what are you chasing essentially are you chasing performance or are you going to be chasing aesthetics and that's it you want both cuz all of them will require you to have different plans and be okay with how you look based on your goals
1: did you have that mindset when you first started? Absolutely not,
0: <laughs> dude. I was like twenty one, twenty two when I first started. It's it's really rare to meet someone at twenty one or twenty two age to be in that mindset. I mean, it's all it's already rare to have someone at that age to be to go in business. Like that was when I went to business with my business partner and started a pole dancing academy. Then we started making our own polls and distributing our own polls. We started creating and designing our own instructor courses for to certify instructors. Um, and then we started training people to perform for gigs and for events. And, we, and as the team grew, then we went into doing our own productions and traveling the world, executing our productions, hosting championships. Like These are just crazy things that like one thing led to another. And it really comes down to you need to be open with your vision and not hold things back. Because if you if you're not sharing your vision, it's hard for somebody else to see your vision. And it's harder for all of us to go in the same path. Actually, I think it was today that you posted on Instagram and there was like a a
1: flashback to 2009 or something and you and a friend was doing a pole dancing gig together. Yeah. That was a business partner dude. So what was your mindset during that time?
0: Can you talk to that? During that time I just had a conversation with her too after I posted that. I told her things were so simple back then. We had one thing in mind, get the company good. Just simple times and just we had so much fun. That was a thing. It was hard work. We had to carry the poles around ourselves. We had did have no budget to hire anyone to move poles for us. And all of those poles are ours, you know? Like luckily, I had my brother and he had a friend <laughs> that we roped in to be our pole boys and our performers and like and our instructors eventually. But things to have just happened so organically back then of the bigger mm. picture. We were just so busy being busy.
1: Yeah. And then now I see the dances that you, you make, that you perform. It seems like it has a different tone to it.
0: Yes, am definitely. I, am I correct? You are absolutely correct. So when we first started, we had started in Malaysia. And if anyone knows what Malaysia is, Malaysia is a predominantly uh, Islamic country. So a lot of things are being censored out here when it comes to media, when it comes to TV, the only things that are not as censored, I would say are events or parties and stuff. And that was an event for FHM magazine um, after they had done some sort of like pageant miss FHM search and they were doing an after party thing. So the fact that we're doing pole dancing is acceptable, but you might notice that we were dressed quite conservatively for pole dancing. Like we were not wearing two pieces we always had a midriff covered. We're not show, we're not wearing bikinis. And our shorts were not cheeky. They were pretty decent shorts <laughs> that you could wear to the gym. Uh, so we were careful actually with how we market ourselves because we know just how sensitive pole dancing might be. And for us to really reach everybody, we need to keep things PG-13. We need to keep things rated G. So the style that we used back then was more upbeat, fitness-y, um, pop-ish. In terms of sensual type of, class, uh, type of dance, we kept it in the classroom. We, don't, we generally don't do that for performances, just because we don't want that kind of attention, even within the audience. Because at, at the time, the audience is not educated enough to really appreciate it as an art and as a sport.
1: And so now with the different tone, you know, yes, you are wearing the cheeky shorts in your
0: performance. You're wearing like crazy super high cheeky estilettos. shorts. So I think this largely, we have to thank social media for this. Social media has made it acceptable for us to embrace our sensuality and to embrace eroticism in the art of physical expression. And because it's being seen as so common now, it's no longer gonna be seen as something rare and something to make a big fuss about. Although, uh, yeah, some conservative communities will still make a big fuss out of it. I would say social media has definitely helped a lot, but the climate is still different. The climate is still different when it comes to you're posting, you're performing these moves or you're expressing yourself differently in the classroom in a safe environment, and you're posting videos on your own channels. It's still going to be different when someone comes out and do a public performance in a convention center, for example, or at a gala dinner for a charity event, or being on TV or being on on public media, on on regular media. There's still going to be that thing that you have to keep in mind, also depending on which region you're in. For example, if you're in Australia, in the UK, or in the US, it's not a big deal to be performing all of that in a bikini because people wear bikinis anyway and they're going TV. It's a different tone out here in Malaysia. Um, it's also different in Hong Kong and Japan. I think those communities out there are also more inviting and more open. Like you definitely see girls on TV in bikinis and bikinis and stuff. And it's not that big of a deal. It's not taboo. Yeah, I think when
1: I first saw some of your work, it was very confronting. It is not something that I'm used to. Mm. And I really noticed my own reaction in the way it's like, whoa, you know, like she's doing the splits upside down. I can see half her butt, right? Shaking your booty and just like being wild and free. And I love every part of that. I also love the fact that your crew and the image that you represent is very diverse. Everyone looks really different, different body shapes. And that's really inclusive and it's really encouraging.
0: I'm glad you see that. Because that would be exactly what my aim is, is by giving myself permission to just do what I enjoy. Hopefully, that gives you permission to also do what you enjoy and dance for yourself. So what I started doing in class is just to remind students that it's not about how perfect you're doing this, this move or this combo or this choreography. You have to ask yourself, who are you dancing for? Are yeah. you dancing for your teacher or are you dancing for you? I'm sure it's nice to be dancing for your teacher, of course, but you need to dance for yourself first.
1: So true. Just embody your own full It's part being. of self-love
0: and self-care.
1: I remember asking, are you willing to share your experience in how people can learn from the lessons that you have acquired
0: along the way? Okay, you've read the book by Mark Manson, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F." No, I haven't. Oh, my God. Okay, you need to read this. Because okay. funnily enough, when I was reading this, I was in the hospital in Spain, and I realized, wow, I have actually been living this life that's been set in this book for a while now without even realizing that was what I was doing. It really got to a point where you just stop caring about, like, am I living for someone else's opinion? Because that's not any of my business. And just realize what someone else thinks of you is really none of your business. For example, I had to really, I, I just had to swallow the pill that people are not going to see me as, oh, Emily, the fitness guru anymore. They're going to see me as Emily, the cancer patient. And for me, it really doesn't bother me because I know who I am. And the more I'm being, um, I guess, more open, uh, reintroducing myself through the world of whole, I'm also aware that the people I know who are not into pole or people might who might just come through my page and just see pole and just see and just see I don't know vagina shape flashing in their faces in the splits position yeah. and whatever opinion <laughs> they want to form of me to me it doesn't affect my life it doesn't affect my values cuz I stand true to my values I post things for myself we have to remind ourselves as well instagram was created for us it was it was a digital album that you can keep of your memories, either through photo or through video. And just remember it is still for you. And sometimes if you have a following and you are in a great position to be influencing other people to do good, to do better, then great, use your platform for that. But again, it's, it's not to shame anyone who's using it for businesses because yo, everybody got to eat. I think it's just, it will help us so much if we just stop judging each other without getting to know that person and realize that when you judge others, that means you judge yourself really harshly.
1: So for those who want to know, so Emily, it might not be the fitness guru or just a
0: cancer survivor. Who is Emily? Emily today is an advocate for mental health, mental agility. Emily today believes that you can be yourself and still be a good person, even though I wanna say just don't give a F, but also don't be a douchebag in that sense. I think all in all, what I stand for today is mental agility. And mental agility is a giant umbrella that goes into taking care of your main pillars of vitality. You need to check in with yourself psychologically, emotionally, feed yourself nutritionally, and also physically. Once you've taken care of all these pillars to your vitality, then only can you really be of service. If you want to be of service to others, but you yourself are running on empty, then the quality of your service, how is it really helpful?
1: Oh, I love that. That is so beautiful. What is the book you have gifted the most or made the most impact on you?
0: So the book I've been recommending the most, I haven't really been gifting books because of money, is Tuesdays with Maury. And the, the cool thing with that book is I've read it three times now at three different times of my life. And each time I took something a little different from it. The most recent time that I read this book was last year. And that really consolidated my decision on how I view death. That I came to realize I don't think I fear death the same way as before. Death is part of life. And in order to properly live, you need to realize that death is around the corner.
1: I totally agree. I always remind my children don't be scared of death. It is nature. We are born and we die. This is how things work. And you can make
0: jokes about death, it's not a taboo thing.
1: I was contemplating whether to ask this question, but since go you brought it up, I actually think it's important. When you said that you no longer gift, books these days because of money. Um, How are you making a living? Because I know that, you know, you have to do social distancing, you have to be super careful of where you go, who you interact with. And I think making money for your case can be tricky. And it's also a very important question.
0: It is, it is. So finance is not really spoken of as often either. I think finance in general, has always been a sensitive topic even when you're healthy or not, right? So yes. because so I'm no longer working with the company in Spain anymore. It was, just, it was just hard. They need someone to be there full time. And I'm like, I can't be in the office all day. It, it goes against everything that my doctor says. So yeah. thankfully, uh, about the four or five months in after I got diagnosed, a friend of mine has set up a, Go, a GoFundMe page uh, via this website called donorbox.com. And uh, like uh, I was so surprised that so many people had backed it up and it really helped, you know, because living in Hong wow. Kong is expensive. And thankfully, at the time, I was living with my ex uh, and rent was covered. But the minute I moved out, like the minute I left Hong Kong, it was more like, okay, well, I'm on my own now. And now that I'm in Malaysia, I'm also living on my own. So a lot of bills have accumulated. And all of my previous work experience requires me to work in the office in that sense. Like I don't have those digital uh, digital working skills or coding skills and stuff like that. And someone had asked, Well, why don't you go back to school? I'm like, oh, I, I didn't even have money to feed myself. How can I afford an education? It's a silly question. It's a silly suggestion. And they're like, Well, you can apply for grants. I'm like, You obviously don't know this country well enough. We do not get grants for that kind of thing. So, how, how are you managing? So, I've been managing through active donation. Uh, my family helps me out sometimes. And it's, it's draining as well because my family lives uh, in three, four different cities right now, like my, my parents and my brothers and all of them are not like, you know, well off. None of us are well off, but we just, we just pull through for each other and I keep my expenses down as much as I can. I only purchase the essentials. So my money pretty much goes to the expenses like electricity, rent, phone, uh, internet, groceries and transportation. So in Hong Kong, transportation is fairly easy, except when I go to the hospital and it's like 200 bucks Hong Kong uh, taxi, uh, Hong Kong dollars for a taxi ride uh, back and forth. In Malaysia, we have another thing. It's kind of like Uber, but it's called Grab. And so I'm relying on that. And as long as I don't leave, if I don't go anywhere else, I really don't need to spend money on transportation. Honestly, I've been staying home for a long time, even before this whole COVID lockdown thing happened. Right. Yeah, so that's been really helpful and I started doing some like one-off video gigs because I used to make videos anyway for our companies. It's not like fancy stuff, but I'm, I like I can know how to edit videos, I know how to shoot. So that's what I would yeah. offer. They're not that many anyway, but I do what I can. And thankfully this uh one gym in in Hong Kong did offer me the opportunity to remunerate me for a short amount of time. And I oh, was here great. um Back in the same pole academy that I used to run out here, um, they've taken me on as well and say, "If you come in and help us with marketing, we have a small budget. It's a small company still, you know, but that mm-hmm. little bit still helps. It still goes towards sixty percent of my monthly expenses when it comes to rent and expenses and bills." Oh,
1: that's great! Yeah, so that really helps. Great. What's your long term goal then in terms of
0: finance? My long term goal, so I've been asking around, asking people, like, what do they think my strengths are? And mm. the general consensus is that they believe I would make a pretty decent speaker. And given the fact my- that I have experienced what I've experienced, it kind of also in a way legitimizes my position to speak on hardship and resiliency and durability. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just have to go with what is presented. In yes, and you have your own podcast too. as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. So. and the podcast is because I firmly believe in us gaining perspective and also finding strength in other people's stories, just like how I found strength in other people's stories when when they shared their hardships with me. So that's the whole reason why I started the podcast. And also get to know like different types of people and stories, you know, just like in a normal conversation when you go out for coffee, generally people don't like to talk too deep unless you just have that type of friends, which thankfully for me, I do have that type of friends. So I'm so grateful for that. But again, not everybody is like that. So podcast kind of gives people permission to go a little deeper and to talk about themselves and the hardship they've experienced as well.
1: I agree. I agree. It's called Tackling Minds podcast. So for those who are
0: interested, check it out. You've got some really good content out there. Thank you, Donna. I would love to get you on Tackling Minds because I am very interested in why you came up with the interest of podcasts as well. Ah, okay. That's another conversation altogether. Everybody got a story. It's not multiple stories.
1: I just want to put it out there, you know, for anyone who's listening who think they can use your skill and talent And collaborate with you and offer an opportunity, you know, reach out to Emily. I think um, these are important, important conversations to have. Don't shy away from it. And I'm really grateful that you are open to share your financial situation because these are stuff that people don't talk about, but it is extremely important.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I
0: really appreciate this.
1: What is your closing thought on identity through adversity and your own personal growth? My closing
0: thought is that we don't need to attach our identity to anything external and even to ourselves and be okay with it. So identity is just something, identity is a tool. I think identity is a tool for somebody else to identify you as, oh, the Asian girl, oh, the American raised Asian girl. Oh, the podcaster, oh the pole dancer. Yeah. But this is for them to help identify you in their terms and in their boxes and to fit their circumstances in the situation. It doesn't mean that you are what they say. You are who you say and who you are can change according to how you grow. That is so true.
1: They just wanna fit it into their box and try and make sense out of it. Yeah. Sometimes we're so much more more than that.
0: Be okay with checking multiple boxes, eh?
1: absolutely
0: take all of them (laughs) where can our audience find you I'm pretty active on Instagram so you can find me on Instagram with the handle at the Emily Tan that's T-H-E Emily Tan and I'm also active on my podcast Instagram which is at Tackling Minds brilliant thank
1: you so much Emily for your time this has been an awesome conversation thank you Donna
0: for having me and allowing me to share my thoughts I really appreciate what you're doing.
1: Thank you for listening to this conversation with Emily Lola Tan. I would love to hear from you. Your feedback truly encourages me to continue to bring you valuable content on wellness. And it also helps other people find the podcast too. Subscribe to the Interested Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The show notes of this episode are on my website, interested.blog. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend.